Hey, everyone, and welcome to this special episode on the occasion of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Unless you are living under a rock, you know by now that the United States Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade with its release of the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization opinion that came out today, June 24th, 2022. And of course, we are overjoyed and give thanks to God for this ruling. Now, we recorded this episode earlier this week in anticipation of this happening, and so we are delighted that you're joining us here and and listening into the conversation. I hope you find it helpful. But I wanted to direct your attention to a a statement, and of course, it's more than a statement. It's essential. It is a book uh, written by men of Evangel Presbytery. It's called Abortion and the Church, and the link will be in the show notes. Folks, please give it a read. It is very important. It's a difficult read, but this is your time. This is the time that you live in. And so you as a Christian need to learn about these things. You need to educate yourself about abortion in this country and what's coming next. And God in his providence led the men of Evangel Presbytery months before there was even a hint of the possibility of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. God led the men of Evangel Presbytery to start working on this document, and it will be very helpful in charting the course for the future of pro-life uh, anti-abortion work in this country. So please give it, a, give it a read, and I hope you enjoy the conversation today. Of course, I'm joined in the studio by Pastors Tim Bailey and Max Carell. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds podcast. So today, we have been anticipating the release of the Supreme Court opinion about uh, Roe versus Wade. What's the actual name of it, Tim? Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization. Okay. So uh, by the time we release this, it will likely have been released already. And so we thought it would be good for us to talk about this document that we will talk about the opinion, um, but also to talk about the document that uh, Evangel Presbytery has been working on for so long and is uh, will have been released at that point also. The document is called Abortion in the Church, and it is essentially book length. It is a, essentially, not essentially, <laughs> completely and utterly. <laughs> uh, um, but I've never seen anything like it, um, and I'm very excited for it to get out there. We're going to talk about the day, that today, and Tim, uh, I think, is going to start with a reading the introduction to the document. Yeah, let me give a little bit of context. Um, I have mentioned before that when I went in the ministry, I found out that uh, the, P- the Presbyterian Church USA had a self-funded medical care plan. In other words, that means they didn't have to restrict themselves to any of the ethical or moral rules of any national secular plan, but they were able to design this plan precisely the way uh, the church, the Presbyterian church, wanted it, because it only existed to serve the needs of those of us who served the church. Mary Lee and I, from the time, 1976, when we had our first child, we uh, believe that birth and death are best done at home. They're natural processes and are best done in, a, in an environment where 
the focus is on the person rather than the professionals. And we happen to have a friend, John Raffensperger, the chief surgeon at Children's in Chicago, now called Laurie Children's Hospital. He was a friend, and our parents were horrified that we were going to have our first child at home. So I called him up and asked him, because I knew if he said it was okay, that our parents would think it was okay. And he said, have it at home? Absolutely. He said, the hospital is the most dangerous place you can imagine to have a birth. <laughs> and so that was, uh. that did the heavy lifting for us. And so when I was ordained in 1983, one of the first things I did was call up our Presbyterian Church USA medical uh, health care plan. Now, remember, it's self-funded. It just exists for us who are pastors in the church. And I asked them if they pay for home birth. Well, at that time, a home birth usually involved paying a midwife maybe $400, $500. And uh, the man was based in Chicago, and he said, well, I'm not sure. I I will have to check into that. Uh, And I said, well, you know, it'll be thousands of dollars cheaper than having one in the hospital, and we've already had a few. Well, I'll look into it. And all of a sudden, this little um, rat fink in my brain, you know, I have this rat fink (laughs) that sometimes talks to me. (laughs) And this little rat fink in my brain said to me, ask him whether they'll pay for you to kill your baby. And Mm. so I said, you know, before we hang up, can I ask you another question? Oh, sure, Pastor Bailey. I said, uh, if my wife and I decided to, to kill our baby, would you pay for that? Well, it got very, very silent. He didn't know what I was talking about. I said, in other words, if we have an abortion, do you pay? Oh, yes, yes. Abortion is fully paid for. This is PCUSA? Yeah, this is yeah. PCUSA. You know, John Huffman's church. Uh, it was a church that 10th Prez used to be in. Hmm. Um, C. Everett Coop was an elder at 10th Prez. John Huffman out at Newport Beach, California, 4th Prez on North Michigan Avenue, uh, Billy Graham's brother-in-law, Clayton Bell at Highland Park in Dallas, mm. uh, filled with evangelicals who were on the board of Christianity Today and Gordon Conwell and Fuller Seminary. And at that time, nobody knew that they would pay for abortions. Nobody had thought to ask. Mm. So I publicized it, and it caused a huge stink. Really? Yeah, but only among evangelicals. Yeah. Then that caused me to get the document that the church had done on abortion. And they did several documents over time. One of the documents, which we quote in this uh, statement on abortion and the church, one of the documents actually says that abortion can, quote, be an act of faithfulness before God, unquote. Hmm. It's a direct quote. We have the citation and everything. Reading the documents ahead at that time, I ran across them lamenting as a church the fact that both hemophilia and cystic fibrosis were not yet able to be diagnosed in the womb, and so that those children could not be aborted before they were born. Hmm. Well, at that time, I had two living brothers, one of whom had cystic fibrosis and one who had hemophilia. There were other reasons that I got steeled on this issue. 
Mm-hmm. And I won't go into the other issues, but I will say that from that point on, I saw what abortion was. I saw what it was. Yeah, It was not a hypothetical construct to think of them lamenting that my brother David and my brother Nathan couldn't be killed. And I had lost another brother to hemophilia, another brother to cystic fibrosis, another one to leukemia. And so they would have approved of those other two brothers also being killed while in the womb so that they wouldn't have had my parents suffering and me and my family the deaths due to their diseases. Mm. Now, I bring that up because I think it's important for people to understand that all of us have in our commitments in life an etiology, we have an origin, we have a thrust that is intrinsic to our lives, our way of thinking, our gifts. And it should be easy for everybody to understand why somebody that grew up with brothers with cystic fibrosis and hemophilia and brothers who die would look with a combination of horror and hatred at Christians who would decide to to kill these little ones. Yeah. To murder them. I went on and worked with Presbyterians Pro-Life for years, made some very close friends. But even in Presbyterians Pro-Life, what I saw was that most evangelicals were interested in being pro-life only up to a point they were unwilling to be anything more than positive Christian witnesses about the value of life. Hmm. And so Kurt Young, Christian Action Council, Marvin Alasky, uh, Edith Schaefer. What does it mean, though, to be a positive Christian? Well, it just means that you will never say no. You'll only Hmm. say yes. And the no is only by implication. And so it's always been proper to collect diapers and to yeah, yeah. do the walk for life and do the, you know, the donations at the crisis pregnancy centers. But one time my dad, um, and this was very helpful to me, my dad told me that he had been asked to come down to Wheaton. So he, he worked over in Elgin, our church was in Wheaton. He'd been asked by students at Wheaton to come and speak uh, defending uh, the pro-life position. Yeah. So he told me, why don't you come down? We can go and meet me at my office in Elgin and we'll go over, we'll do it. And then we can have dinner. And so I went over to his office and he had already largely written what he was going to say. And I found out the context was that, uh, they had a woman who was a part of the religious coalition for abortion rights, our car, and that she was going to be presenting the pro-abortion position Hmm. and it was going to be at the student union um and that they had that the students had tried to find a faculty member or a member of the administration who would hold up the pro-life position but nobody was willing to do that and so they went to my father Hmm. off i mean he was he was a graduate Nobody was willing to speak on the pro-life no, position. No, they, they went Amazing. to my dad. Yeah. Wow. And I would assume nobody even in Wheaton. I know, and I mention in this paper, that uh, when Schaefer and Coop went on their dog and pony show with that movie and everything, they did one in Chicago. I was at the one in Denver, and they said they called up 14 or 17 evangelical leaders, and of course they were 
super famous at that time yeah. among evangelicals, trying to get any of them to come to their film series and lectures, and they could not get one evangelical leader to come Amazing. in Wheaton. We, we don't realize how very, very nascent mm-hmm. <laughs> pro-life commitments of evangelicals and reform people were for decades. So anyhow, I noticed, and so we worked on his talk for a little bit, and I'm sure I contributed something. This was typical of my dad, that he would always ask his children to help him. Mm-hmm. It was just so sweet. Yeah, that's well, really... But I, what I remember is that my dad had in his paper and said it in the union with the students. He said, first of all, I want to make it clear that I do not apologize for being a man representing a pro-life position. He wow. said, this is not a woman's issue. This is an issue of human life. And it was just so refreshing for my dad to say that yeah because finally somewhere in evangelicalism there was a man well you know what i'm saying just somebody who would actually say no then he he went on to say and furthermore he said i am not here representing the pro-life commitment i am here representing the anti-abortion position Hmm. and he said imagine back with slavery if there had been a bunch of people fighting because they they just really liked negroes (laughs) from africa you know we're pro-negro right and he said it never worked it had to be an abolitionist yep no union with slaveholders Now, I give that as a background so that uh, people can understand that although at this point in my life, I've spent a couple of decades fighting about the true doctrine of sexuality, Mm -hmm. that largely has been required by us having a university here that overwhelms the whole community. It's 45,000. The community is only 70. Yeah. And... um, you cannot shepherd students and grad students and faculty without standing against the greatest attack upon God and his authority and his law, which is sexuality. It's still there. Mm-hmm. And so that has been where we as a church have taken our firmest stand, have done the most teaching, the most books and everything. And so people might be sort of surprised that we actually do care about the slaughter of the unborn children. Mm. So that's as a background. I just wanted to give it. It is something that we are adamant about. Mm -hmm. We refuse to allow it to be a positive message. It's not pro-life. It's anti-abortion. And it is no union with abortionists. None. Mm -hmm. We had an appellate judge come to our church for a while who had become a Christian through some terrible pain in his life that he had to endure. And while he was at our church, very dignified man, grad of, uh, well, (laughs) one of the top, (laughs) one of the top law schools in the country. Anyhow, and a good man. And I remember saying to him once, say his name is John Doe. I said, John, uh, and it was first name because we had been through some difficult things together in his life. Hmm. And I said, you know, John, I said, Baby Doe was starved to death by the courts here in Bloomington. Mm -hmm. That was back in 82, 83. And I said, you know that we're slaughtering 
millions and millions of unborn children all the time in this country, let alone around the world. And I said, John, how? And of course, it, nothing other than God was more important to him than the rule of law. Huh. Nothing. I mean, he is a consummate. Lawman. Uh, yes, judge. Mm. And uh, I said to him, John, how on earth can we claim to have the rule of law when our law does not protect people at the margins of life? Hmm. We don't protect defective newborns. We don't protect, protect the elderly. Yep. We don't protect the feeble. We don't protect those with spina bifida and Down syndrome in the womb. And it's open season on any unborn child. Mm -hmm. And I said, John, the truth is we have no rule of law. Mm. Because a, a law is only as good as how it protects the defenseless on the margins of society. Yeah. I, if I remember correctly, he was very angry at me at that. Really? Point. Yeah. Yeah. He did not agree with me. Hmm. Um, was but, he, would he have considered himself pro-life? Or anti-abortion or something? or He was against abortion. Okay. Yes. But legally, like he, he would have been in favor of laws criminalizing abortion? He did abortion. vote in favor. He did vote in favor of holding somebody accountable for killing an unborn child. Hmm. Um, I remember that case because he sent me the brief. But I just think... What he said is what almost any evangelical, almost any reform person would say. I think the most conservative reform people would laugh at me for saying that there is no rule of law if it's open season on the lives of people at the margins of society who are defenseless. You know, I'm just drawing to the end of something that you got me to do, which is to read the Gulag, Archipelago, yeah. by Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. And... You know, was there rule of law then? <laughs> it's so horrible. Yeah. We don't have the ability of seeing how horrible it is for millions upon millions so, of little ones each year who are being slaughtered in our own country. Yeah. And don't you think in the time of Solomon that the, that the people in Jerusalem would have thought they had the rule of law while they were sacrificing children to Moloch? Mm. There's a weird comfort Maybe it's the prophet's comfort or something to finally have somebody speaking the truth. Mm. But it's it's horrifying as well. It really is horrifying. Yeah. So anyhow, that's the preface that I wanted to give to this document. And if you don't mind, I'd just like to read about the first three and a half pages. Please. Okay. The title is Abortion in the Church. Evangel Presbytery has received and acted upon this, commending it to the church. And here's the text. I remember... A number of years into doing anti-abortion work, I came across this text. I've never forgotten it. This is Isaiah 26, verse 21. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. Wow. I've never forgotten reading that and realizing that in Scripture, land and earth are personified hmm. 
okay? Mm-hmm. And so you read about the land vomiting out the Canaanites because of their wickedness. God is tender about the land. Did you ever read Pearl Buck's The Good Earth? I have read that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if you've ever ministered among farmers like I have, you you get a feeling for just this foundational, fundamental love for mm-hmm. man. And all through Solzhenitsyn's autobiography, Between Two Stones, which I read before the Gulag and now the Gulag, you just have this constant, constant hatred by Stalin and the communists for everybody who loved the land mm-hmm. because that's who the Kulaks were. Yep. You know, they were the people who were committed to the land and improved it. And they were an obstacle to the to the socialist treatment of the means of production of the land. Anyhow, mm-hmm. so there's the verse and now the introduction. Evangel Presbytery is a group of churches who have joined together to confess the historic Orthodox Christian, Protestant, and Reform faith. Evangel provides for our mutual fellowship and instruction, but also serves as an ecclesiastical court adjudicating the inevitable disagreements and conflicts which every church has faced since the first Council of Jerusalem recorded in Acts 15. You know, I thought people wouldn't see that as a, as an asset or a feature, <laughs> you know, that you adjudicate, well, I hope you don't have, you don't have, you don't have God. We don't have God. We don't, no, no, we don't have God. Nope. I, <laughs> there are a number of footnotes here that I'm not going to mention, okay. including to these documents from Evangel Presbytery. Evangel has produced a book of church order, a footnote there, by which we govern the proceedings of our individual congregations and presbytery, as well as a directory for worship by which we govern our worship. From time to time, Evangel writes and adopts statements addressing contemporary doctrinal and moral challenges mounted against God and his truth by the world in which we live. One previous statement titled, Declaration of Doctrine and Policies Concerning Sexuality, condemns the world's attack upon God's gift of the diversity of sexuality by which he makes every man either male or female. Two statements addressing matters related to COVID also were adopted by Evangel titled Statement on Sphere Authority, Worship, and COVID-19 Quarantines, 2020, that was published, and Statement on Conscience and COVID-19 Vaccine Mandates, that was published in 2021 and a link to them. Mm -hmm. This statement was written by members of Evangel Presbytery in response to a petition by the session of Sovereign King Church requesting that Evangel Presbytery address the sin of abortion. In response to that petition, at its stated meeting October 8, 2021, Evangel appointed a committee to study and write a report on abortion. This report was presented to Evangel Presbytery for their action at the stated meeting held June 2, 2022, so just a few weeks ago at our meeting in South Carolina. Evangel received this report titled Abortion in the Church, voting to commend it to our member churches and the church Catholic around the world. When the committee began its work, there wasn't a hint of the Supreme Court of the United States taking any action reversing its prior 1973 ruling, Roe v. Wade. Then, on May 2, 2022, Politico shocked the nation by releasing a draft majority opinion by Justice Alito in the case Dobbs 
versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Reading Alito's draft opinion, it seemed apparent a majority of the court was poised to reverse Roe v. Wade. Now, here I put in the date June 20. Our best guess was that's the day that the decision would be released. We're recording this with this issue still held in abeyance mm -hmm. by the Supreme Court. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but all indications are there will be a radical reversal on some level. So now the Supreme Court of the United States has issued their decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, in which they did indeed reverse Roe v. Wade. And I'm going to add here that reversal might not be complete, but mm -hmm. it's undoubtedly going to be something of a reversal. Evangel Presbytery thanks God for causing the Supreme Court to reverse Roe v. Wade. This bloody rebellion against God's sixth commandment, our nation's constitution, and the fundamental rule of law has been the cause of the greatest denial of basic human rights in our history, as well as the most enduring and highest conflict our nation has experienced since its founding in 1776. Hmm. The court's formal repudiation of their former wicked decision is joyful news for the righteous across our nation, as well as those who fear God across the watching world. Infinitely more important, though, is the hope this brings that the millions of little ones who have been slaughtered during the genocidal holocaust perpetrated against this class of persons unable to speak or defend themselves may finally be recognized and mourned as the victims of murder, so that in time our nation may come to full repentance for this bloodshed we have committed individually and as a nation. We have addressed abortion in the church, quote, to the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, unquote. It is our prayer that first the church herself will repent of her own murders committed against those little ones given her by God as his individual blessings placed in the wombs of his daughters. This statement does its most exhaustive work naming and proving the church's own blood guilt in this matter. This is only right, given God's words, quote, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner, unquote? That's First Peter 4. Hmm. Still, the end of all things is near, and soon the King of kings and Lord of lords will return in power and glory to judge the whole earth. On that day, the creator of all things will not render his judgments concerning his own people, the Christian church only. Rather, he will judge all men who then will learn the truth of Scripture that, quote, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, unquote. Concerning our slaughter of many millions of little ones, we must face our Lord Jesus' warning concerning those who harm children. Quote, he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
Matthew 18, verses 2 to 6. The Father Almighty sees everything. Nothing can be hidden from him who has warned us he hates the bloodshed of innocence. Hmm. Whether the murder of his little ones is accomplished with drugs very early or surgically very late in the life of his precious children living within their mother's womb, every abortion is the bloodshed of innocence. Will the people of God repent? Will those who have no faith in Jesus turn and repent, fleeing to his cross for the forgiveness of their blood guilt? The reversal of Roe v. Wade may lead to some decrease in the slaughter, but it will not bring this slaughter to an end. The end of this horror will arrive only when God works among us to cause men to repent and turn to the Lord Jesus, restoring the love and honor of woman as the life-giver God created her. The bloodshed will end only when man once more receives with joy those little ones God blesses us with, placing them in woman's womb. Jesus declared, quote, for the beginning of creation, God made the male and female, unquote. Thus, Genesis records Adam, quote, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living, unquote. Will man turn again to loving woman as mother of all the living? To love woman is to love the fruit of her womb. In springtime, this is beautiful, the beautiful opening and awakening cried out by all of creation. May God cause the heart of man to return to woman, the heart of husband to return to wife, and the heart of father and mother to return to the little child who is the fruit of their love, being knit together by God in the secret place. Quote, for you form my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Psalm 139, 13-16. So that's the introduction. As you were talking about there's no rule of law when the people on the margins aren't protected, I was thinking about scripture that would connect that in my head because people might think about it and think, well, how does that work? What does that mean? What comes to mind is from James chapter 2. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there's also a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here at a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Hmm. Okay, well, that doesn't connect it yet for me, right? But it's something because there's something going on where we're showing partiality partiality, and that's a sin. Yeah. And it's saying that's a sin. And so he goes over to, to verse 8. He says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Hmm. And so if we diminish these people on the margins and we show partiality uh, toward people who aren't on the margins, we are 
convicted by the law as transgressors. And it goes on to say, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all, which I've read many times and used in the context of a lot of things. But he says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit murder, but you do commit adultery, you have become a transgressor of the law. So he's saying, look, showing partiality is tantamount. Do <laughs> <laughs> you understand? Marginalizing people. But in this case, it's it's we're breaking the law by marginalizing, and further than that, we're breaking the law by murdering in our marginalization of them. <laughs> and that's the scripture I was thinking of that I thought of as trying to try to explain to people the connection between being between there being lawlessness when we don't have uh, when we don't have constraint on that kind of sin, it's lawless. That's the that was the thing I the best thing I could think of to to uh, to help connect with it. it to scripture yeah to connect it that way, hmm. and there are probably many better ones than that. But but I'd never thought about that passage in James applying to this. Mm. Yeah, the partiality that we show, mm. or the or the way we relegate. Mm. What is this infant? Well, they're not as well. They're not as worth as much and many people who embrace abortion abortion look at it that way they simply look at it and say oh they're not worth this that much yeah one of the greatest difficulties we have with this issue of opposing abortion is the fact that you've got the anti-defamation league putting up holocaust museums yeah and you have the blm movement endlessly repeating the horrors of chattel slavery in the south but there's absolutely no way you can't have a story uncle tom's cabin about the babies we're slaughtering. You know, they are the very definition of voiceless, powerless. Yeah. But something that I've seen recently, Tim, that's made me furious is the way that we'll have that voice for our pets. I mean, I saw this Mm. dog food commercial recently where the dog is personified and is talking. Yeah. And it says... If I could talk, I would say, Mama, this is the dog in the commercial. <laughs> Mama, would you please? And it's just so it's your wicked point, yeah. evil that we'll actually do this as a society. We do have the animals. Ability. We have yeah. the ability with yeah. animals to give them a voice yeah. because well, we okay. value. And that might not be Let exactly me- what you're saying, but. Let me play the devil's advocate. I think it's an excellent point you're making. But isn't it true that everybody's had their heart bonded to a dog? Yeah. And some women, even to a cat. (laughs) 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 Because the cat gives them more emotional intimacy than even their husbands do, and that's because their husband is an engineer. No, I'm sitting here laughing. Yeah. I have many well, years of pastoral counseling under my belt. But it's easy for me to, I mean, you know, there's well, many, but, many women have bonded to the child that they've never seen in their womb. But but it is hard for men yeah. to have sympathy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not denying that. I'm not denying that what I'm saying is So in other words, all I'm trying to say is yeah. that it seems like it would be easier to personify a dog or a cat 
and even a dolphin than it would be an unborn child simply by the fact that the unborn child is so other. Mm. It doesn't cuddle up with you. It doesn't need to be fed. It doesn't purr when you scratch it. It doesn't fetch when you throw the stick. I don't know. I, I will say this is one of the most enduring difficulties of opposing abortion. Yeah. It is so difficult. And I did call Brandon Chastine, you know, if any of you listen to the book, I did call him about a year and a half ago. I said, Brandon, write a book that personifies the unborn child. Yeah. Write it. Because anybody that knows the history of the Civil War and of ending slavery knows you just can't se- separate that from Harriet Beecher Stowe writing Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm-hmm. And so this is a really difficult thing we have. Yeah, there has to be leadership, not just in the laws, changing the laws, but in the culture. Mm. Yeah. Well, so we did talk about this statement, which, as we've said numerous times, is more like a book a few weeks ago. But a lot of work is a lot of work has been done on it. And there's a few things that I was struck with as I reviewed the document. Did did you intentionally Avoid saying red. <laughs> um, Come on, be truthful. I did not read every word. Oh, oh no. <laughs> but I did read a lot I of it. I suppose you skimmed the Bible too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think we can talk too much about the work that that document does to open your our eyes to chemical abortions. Um, that's one thing. But then additionally, there was an amazingly fascinating discussion about pharmacaea. Pharmacaea, pharmacaea. Mm -hmm. There was a a very, very interesting discussion about pharmacaea. Josh and I did have conflict over that. And the reason is that Josh Josh has his his doctorate in um, classical studies from here at IU. It means he's an expert in Latin, Greek, other languages. And he opened up the use of pharmacaea in several places in the New Testament and then in the Didache, mm. showing that it was absolutely condemned in Scripture and in the early church. Well, what is it? Well, Josh shows very clearly that pharmacaea is the use of, now this is the essence of the disagreement, because it depends on how you, you know, how you say it depends upon your understanding of the culture at the time and the best way to communicate that culture to people today. Okay. So, pharmacaea today could easily be translated drugs. It also could easily be translated incantations, sorcery, mm. magic. So Simon Magus probably used pharmacaea. That was probably uh, one aspect of his magical powers. Um, but why is that a conflict? Wouldn't I mean? Well, it's it a seems- conflict because Josh is a PhD. Yeah, and PhDs are taught to always understate their case and be sure to doubt themselves. Solzhenitsyn was interviewed <laughs> by the New York by the New Yorker right before he left, and he said, "You know, you guys, I know you didn't like me." And he says, in the West, a man has to make sure to doubt himself and to say he might, after all, be wrong. He says, but I did not have time for that. I was writing the red wheel. I had to fight the demon of communism at the highest pitch of expression. Yeah. Well, that's that's completely contrary to the modern 
yep, yep. Uh, academy and to higher education. So Josh did a very good job, but I was pushing him to be more declarative and less suggestive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we did have a real disagreement over whether or not, um, I mean, it really does hover around those words, drugs versus sorcery. But that's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I pause on, because when I think about, for instance, a witch doctor in West Africa, Africa yeah, which is where right, I used to right, live, right. I mean, it's like you don't separate the two things. They're together. But all Americans do. Americans separate it. Yeah. You know, we think of pharmaceuticals as being objective. Yeah, you go to Kroger to get your pills. You go to the... Yeah, it's the difference between modern and postmodern. Yeah. Pharmacies are modern. Witch doctors are (laughs) postmodern. Well, there you have that. (laughs) We had a sort of cosmic earth mother, yin-yang, back-to-nature kind of woman in our church for a while. And she used to help women at times when they were giving birth and afterwards. I remember sending me down to this hovel of a house <laughs> downtown bloomington to pick up some potions yeah and I, and I wasn't sure whether i was actually buying medicine <laughs> or some spiritual power yeah yeah, yeah. you know it, it, you know and and the lady serving me behind the desk had braided armpits you know and <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke uh, <clears throat> but anyhow um so yeah when you're dealing with drugs in the ancient world Almost never are they separated from incantations, potions, unseen spiritual forces. As a matter of fact, when Josh and I were arguing about the only time that you can find an objective, pure use of drugs for drugs is actually poison. Mm. Where when people give poison, they know it will kill your body and that's their intent. But if you can think of controlling birth controlling fertility controlling intercourse and its fruit you can realize that all through the history of man and i use man inclusive of men and women because that's what god named us adam Mm -hmm. all through history man has tried to influence the secret things remember in Psalm 139 he's woven together in the secret places yeah and so all through history these incantations, the potions, the magic, the pharmacaea are used to try to control. Say, for instance, you have a competitor for the love of a man. Mm. Well, you will have an you will hire some magician or sorcerer to place a spell, a hex on them. But then also there will be some pharmacaea they will give you, which will theoretically keep them from getting pregnant by this man. You'll slip it in their drink, something like that. Yeah. So I hope that sort of gives you an idea of what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard to separate it from magic. And that's why in most of the translations say they translate it sorcery. But of course, Mm -hmm. it's a terrible translation because you never think drugs with yeah. sorcery. No, a Western American is not going to Yeah, think you that just way. think, well, he is going, but there are references in early church documents to just, you said drugs, except when it's to murder somebody. And there are references in early church documents for people, take, women taking drugs so that their babies would die, so that they would abort. And they were specifically to abort the babies. Is that always, it's not always associated with witch doctoring and, and incantations, is it, Tim? Well, I would almost say 
Yes, it almost is always. You just can't separate the manipulation of spiritual forces in the ancient world. But but can we do that now? Even though we don't, isn't it demonic and 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 spiritual in an in an awful when you way. take RU four eighty six when you take RU forty six isn't that you know what I'm saying you don't say an incantation as you do it you know one of the problems with fighting abortion is that people think they're in control of their choices yeah yeah we have been taught so intensely that we are masters of our fate mm-hmm. and that. There are objective, rational, logical, reasonable reasons why you do this and that happens. And so, for instance, we think we've chosen to abort our little babies. We think we've chosen to prophylact our lovemaking so that it doesn't result in pregnancy. But if you read Scripture, what Scripture says is that God curses us. We think we've chosen women presidents or women, you know, whatever, prime ministers. But Scripture says that this is a curse, that God has children oppress the nation that he's cursing and that women rule over them. Hmm. And so we need to think more about the unseen forces. You know, Lewis says that it, it serves Satan's purposes fine to not force us to acknowledge that there are spiritual forces as long as they're free to do their wickedness. We know in Peter it says that Satan is like a roaring lion roaming around seeking whom he may devour. And that's a spiritual force. We know that Jesus opens people's eyes to uh, the spiritual reality around them, how many angels could have been sent to protect him in the Garden of Gethsemane. So all I'm trying to make the case is that we have to begin to think biblically. And when we give over our bodies and our marriage beds and our churches to prophylacting against the fruitfulness of woman as life giver, I, you know, I hesitate to say this, but this is God's judgment on the church today. Mm-hmm. This is nothing the church has chosen. Let me read that Didache passage. It says, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit pederasty. You shall not commit fornication, porneuesis. You shall not steal. You shall not practice magic. And that's mugesis. And that's what it actually refers to in Acts for Simon Magus. Okay. okay. You shall not use potions, pharmacusis. Okay. Okay. You shall not murder a child by abortion, phoniusis, technon, and pathora, nor kill it after it is born. And so in the Didache, and this is a wonderful uh, lesson that Josh gives us, they actually separate out. Did you see this? Mm -hmm. They separate out a... They separate out magic, you shall not practice, you shall not use potions, that's pharmacaea, you shall not murder a child by abortion, Mm. nor kill it after it is born. So magic, potions, and of course they can be used both to prevent pregnancy and to kill a child Mm. in the womb, Mm. it would be understood to include both things. You shall not murder a child by abortion. 
and you shall not kill it after it's born, and that is infanticide. And we have to remember that uh, the Hippocratic Oath, which was taken by all the doctors who started doing abortions after Roe v. Wade, and even before, doctors all took the Hippocratic Oath at the time. Mm-hmm. We're going back to ancient Greece. Doctors promise never to involve themselves in abortion. And so this is how universally this was prescribed across all history. All right. Ephesians 6 says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the dark, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And, when you think about our murder of our own children mm-hmm. as connected to a struggle against powers and forces and forces of wickedness, and you see that there, you were talking earlier about we think that we're we are the master masters of our actions and the masters of our destiny, when in fact we are subject to of a war nobody is in the demilitarized nobody's in the the uh the place where they're not at war everyone everyone is in at war in the every day for our minds our hearts our actions before god we are at war you know it's interesting that text you just read we use that in this section on pharmacaea oh we write moderns are tempted to sever the body from the soul thinking medicine has only to do with the body we congratulate ourselves on having arrived at a time when medicine is an entirely empirical science Mm. not so in the ancient world where the spiritual and physical were inseparable commitment to specific deities of greco-roman polytheism varied over time but overall men were acutely aware of the spiritual the apostle paul made this simple observation for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the powers against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places ephesians 6:12 and then we go on and say concerning conception and childbirth the intermingling of flesh and blood and the spiritual forces of wickedness was not yet subjected to any post-enlightenment hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly right, reading that. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you want to know where this uh, occurrence of uh, Simon Magus the Magician is, Acts 8, and then if you want to know where Pharmacaea occurs, I read it from... I read it from uh, the Didache, but it's also Galatians 5, 19 to 21. And then it's also in Revelation 9, 21. Hmm. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries, pharmakeia, hmm. or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And we should state the obvious, pharmakeia is where we get our word pharmacy from. <laughs> So every man, wow. every every doctor took the the Hippocratic oath, mm-hmm. and they would not abort children, right? Well, the Hippocratic oath is a vow they yes. take when they assume the practice of medicine that they will not have anything to do with abortion. Have you guys heard about this guy with his PhD in 2019 named Steve Jacobs? He he he, he did his PhD. 
and his study was on the question of abortion. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to ask when life begins. And so first he pulled uh, two or 3,000 people to say, where would you go to find out a definitive answer about when life begins? And so overwhelmingly they said, well, you would have to go to biologists. They would tell you when life begins. So then he went around the world and he pulled 5,577 biologists and asked them when life begins. <laughs> 5,577, and this went crazy when he got his results because 96% of the, the, the people we're supposed to go to for the definitive answer of when life begins, 96% said life begins at fertilization. Mm -hmm. Isn't that bizarre? And then some of the responses that he got for for why you know the, when when they disagreed that it dis, that it began yeah. fertilization the people were just angry you're just a, a christian you're just a this they didn't want to respond because it's all about your all this and that and, yeah and yeah 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 but it's fascinating because the article the uh, the paper that that has been produced by evangel talks about even the way that the medical establishment has tried to redefine and has yeah. succeeded in culture of redefining when life begins, mm -hmm. right? Yep. But even then, when you go to biologists and they're looking at, well, okay, when does life, when does this person become mm -hmm. a person? They say, when they're conceived. Yeah. It's that conception. In the statement, uh, we document, document, document. I don't know, there's 250 footnotes links that you can click through um and without question that will be the most that will be the place in the document that angers conservative reformed christians most because we we don't pull any punches about the agency of many forms of the iud and hormonal methods of birth controls starting with morning after pills mm. and the thing, the thing that we have to realize is, when has the church ever stood against the sins of its culture? We have so many defenses of chattel slavery on the part of conservative Presbyterians in the South at the time of the Civil War. But I want to reiterate what's said in the introduction. That conflict is nothing. And the suffering is, is so much less than that of the just billions and billions of babies around the world who've been killed and there is no you know blm movement there's no you know dead baby movement there's no anti-defamation league against these little ones and we have to begin to be christians and stop trying to be to cop a posture like the world and recognize the horror of what we've done and we as the church this document's focused on the church yeah yeah we as the church are the ones who have killed these babies we it's not they, and that's what you always are led to believe. You know, every January twenty yeah. third, when you have your pro life Sunday, it's like we have to stop. <laughs> you know, Planned Parenthood. Yeah, yeah. Well, Planned Parenthood is is a very small drop in the bucket of the agency of killing 
little boys and girls that God knits together in the womb. Mm. And we kill them precisely at the same time as Jesus was in the womb of Mary when Mary was traveling to see Elizabeth, her relative. Jesus was exactly mm. the same age of when the vast majority of Christian children are killed by their parents. And the parents say, well, we're only trying to prevent pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so we document the whole sophisticated lying mechanism. Uh, Interestingly, recently, one of the pediatrician's publications did a sort of summary of how it happened. But they decided in the early 60s, 60 and 61, that they were going to change the definition of of conception. And they actually changed it from fertilization to implantation. Mm -hmm. And so from then on, all the Christians went whole hog into using hormonal birth control. And that was the whole point. The whole point was to remove any moral scruples that Christians had, and it worked. And to this day, you'll talk to pharmacists in the most conservative churches. You'll talk to some of the famous voices online who everybody thinks are so conservative, and they'll defend the use of hormonal contraception. And there's just, you know, we document this endlessly in this document, Mm -hmm. just with the highest, the most impeccable sources. Mm -hmm. There is no way around the fact that birth control has a significant, it's oftentimes, depending on the method of birth control, it is true that oftentimes it is the exception to that form of birth control rather than the rule. But the agency is indisputable. Mm -hmm. And if you keep using birth control that has a minor agency of abortifacient nature, over the life of your use of that method of birth control, you will kill many of your babies. And you won't grieve them because you never felt them in your womb. Mm -hmm. And your breasts never started swelling. Mm -hmm. And your husband never put his hand on your belly. You know, earlier you were talking about the schemes of the devil and how he's happy if we don't believe in the existence of of evil forces around us, because as as long as we don't believe in them and we're we're uh, blissfully ignorant serving them, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. And it's somewhat the same way in this issue, because here we come to we're glad. Okay, say they overturn. Uh, Roe v. Wade, and we stop surgical abortions in the United States. We're all glad about that. But if we stop surgical abortions and we up the and we up the game in chemical abortions, right. then what have we done? We've made ourselves feel better. We've got we've gotten over it. But we haven't come to the point of understanding where, in fact, we actually participate and are under the thumb of wicked spiritual forces Mm. when we haven't examined our own selves we haven't examined our own uh lack of love of life our own lack of commitment to being to to men being made in the image of god our our own self-serving in wanting our comforts kept around us our desire to have comforts and have increase without having the responsibility of children Mm-hmm. without fulfilling the command of God to be fruitful, with having sex without any com- any kind of uh, responsibility associated with it, you know, we'll have all of that and not even realize that it's there. Not even realize that we haven't given a thought to it and given a thought to really our standing before God on the issue of life, on you the know, issue of babies. 
you know, you're talking about our agency. I really think that, and I know I say this a lot, so I'm going to say it again, and I'm sure people are sick of hearing me say it. But if you'll understand that I've been working on this with Josh and the other men for, what, eight months now, and the absence of the fear of God in the church today is just the thing that as I resign this pulpit and think about, you know, going over to Germany and Taiwan and listen to people that live in these other parts of the world, but also as I go back to Wheaton and look at the PCA, there is no fear of God before our eyes. Mm. It's one of the most serious condemnations that Scripture has for a people. There's no fear of God. And... As it happens, yesterday, putting the final touches on this in preparation for the release of the Dobbs opinion, I put in a section having to do with having to deal with what I think is the perfect illustration of our refusal to recognize God as the judge eternal and the cheap grace, the gentle lowly, all this crap that comes out of evangelical publishers and gospel coalition. Everybody is just having this, this, this banquet feast of unbearable lightness. All right. Yep. And this is to me, maybe the most telling thing. So my dad, when he died back in 85, he was on the board of the Americans United for life. It's always been in Chicago uh, Paige Cunningham, Paige Comstock Cunningham, I think is her full name. She was the head of it for years, and it's been the legal arm of the pro-life movement. It has been in the past fairly good. But after Alito's uh, opinion was um, leaked by Politico, we all know the hatred it unleashed on the part of the bloodthirsty ones that we live among. I mean, they it was like a cross in a vampire's face. The fact that they could lose their ability to slaughter their unborn children at will, it just made people go into a frenzy. So all the pro-life organizations in that context issued a statement, something like 78, it's variously reported, there were like 80-some people that signed it from these different organizations. And here's the letter they released. The letter was intended to keep anybody from proposing, let alone passing, any laws that penalized a woman for murdering her unborn child. That was the purpose of the paper. And here's what they say. And by the way, most of what I'm reading is in bold. It's their emphasis. They put it in bold. All the emphases are original. All right. Women are victims of abortion and require our compassion and support as national and state pro-life organizations representing tens of, this is all in bold, mm. representing tens of millions of pro-life men, women, and children across the country. Let us be clear. We state unequivocally that we do not support any measures seeking to criminalize or punish women. And we stand firmly opposed to include such penalties in legislation we understand better than anyone else. So now it's not bold. Mm. We, we understand better than anyone else the desire to punish the purveyors of abortion who act callously and without regard to the dignity of human life. 
But turning women who have abortions into criminals is not the way. Now, think about this. And the more I thought about it yesterday, writing about it, the more wicked it became. I I ended up saying, look, I can understand how discretion is the better part of valor. Politics is the art of impossible. I can see how in any state you would make a decision. You weren't going to pass laws to penalize and criminalize women. Mm-hmm. But these people, and this included Americans United for Life, this included uh, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention until recently. You know, Richard Land read it for years until recently. Russ Moore read it, you know. It includes U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, the Faith and Freedom Coalition, Life Issues Institute, National Association of Pro-Life Nurses, National Right to Life. All these organizations wrote and signed this. And and I want to ask them, as I do here, have we come to think so highly of the minds? I'm sorry. Have we come, I'm reading here after we quote that, I say, have we come to think so lightly of the minds, consciences, and souls of women that we issue statements absolving them of any responsibility for their murder of their own children. Do these pro-life leaders claim to speak for God? And they're dispensing this absolution publicly to mothers who have aborted their pre-born children. No murder is hidden from God. Now, just surfing off what you just said, Max, it is one thing to be a pragmatist when it comes to dealing with the civil authority. Yeah. It's one thing for the civil authority to make judgments about what is wise in his leadership and in the legislation he supports. Okay. It is another thing entirely to refuse and to, and to deny the moral agency of women. Mm. What I, what I was flashing through my mind is that, Wow, so this is what feminism has led us to. Yeah. And specifically in the church, it's like women have no moral agency. It's just bogged totally your gone. Mind. Yeah. It's like the very opposite of what feminism told us they were going to do. <laughs> they told us that they were going to you know, restore to women their God-given right to be a moral Dignity. agent yeah. and to seize their destiny and to take control. And then they seize their destiny. They take control of their bodies themselves by killing their child. Mm-hmm. And then we say they're just victims. Yeah. You know, it's the evil surgic people, you know, the doctors and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you've been listening, you've heard us talking about pharmacaea and drugs and hormonal methods of birth control, you will want to know that we have a number of PhDs who have been involved in the production of this. And in particular, uh, three men with the terminal degree and one that's ABD in biochemistry. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to say that so that people understand we're not just, you know, country rubes lacking the terminal degree, which all three of us here lack, (laughs) you know, although I guess, an MDiv might qualify in some places as a terminal degree. <laughs> but I, wa- I just wanted to mention that, and we list them, and where they got their degrees from 
in this document so that people can understand that we have done our work carefully. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So there are going to be, if you're listening to this, of course, we want you to go read this document. And there are going to be a lot of reasons why you're going to be tempted to not read this mm-hmm. document. But I want to hold out to you something I referenced earlier in this conversation in a different context, and that is the the prophet's reward. Not that it's going to be easy or that you're going to feel happy after reading this document. Actually, you'll probably feel sick to your stomach. But the prophet's reward is that you'll finally hear some truth. And we do pray that there is truth in this document that'll be helpful to the church in leading the church to repentance in particular. And we pray that God would lead us to repentance and lead our nation to repentance. And I am going to say from my experience here in this town of working for decades with children produced by conservative reform homes and evangelical homes, children who went to places like Calvin and Taylor and Wheaton, Mm -hmm. that if pastors and older women in churches will teach and live the love of woman's life givingness, Mm. it is such an incredible blessing and such joy. (laughs) I mean, and you can't believe this until you have the faith to actually teach the blessing of Eve, whom God made life giver. And it's very clear the only way to get rid of the slaughter of the unborn is through love hmm. for life. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We really appreciate it. But I want to reiterate while I still have you that the real deal is the abortion document, abortion in the church. So please give it a read, share it on social media. We not only will have it available as a PDF download, but Lord willing, very soon we will have it up on its own website. So please read it, share it, get the word out. Thank you. My name is Lucas Weeks, and the conversation today was with Tim Bailey and Max Carell. We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds. Bye for now.